Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist and coach, also keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As podcast listeners know, my goal is always to bring you guests who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different ways of helping us to become better versions of ourselves every day. And I am so thrilled to be able to present today's guest. I know that her story and her subject is going to be of interest to everybody because it's a concern that everybody has. Rebecca Chop has a very distinguished academic career, uh, having earned a PhD from the University of Chicago and then subsequently uh, functioning in many high level professorial uh, positions and assignments, including serving as president of Colgate University and Swarthmore College. And in 2019, she was serving as chancellor of the University of Denver when suddenly the world changed as she got the diagnosis that none of us want to ever hear. But she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to let you let her tell you the story of that. But the fact is that early in the diagnosing process, she was uh, told that, you know, by this point in time, that she wouldn't be able to uh, take care of a lot of her own needs. Uh, she, She actually... She and her husband actually moved into a care facility to prepare themselves for the expected decline. Um, Not only did it not work because they didn't need that level of care and now live independently again, but since that time, she has written a book. She's very active in organizations that deal with Alzheimer's disease um, on the board of the Alzheimer's Association Colorado uh, and she wants to help others live their best lives despite the diagnosis. I should point out that uh, although she didn't have a great experience with her first neurologist who said that that she would be so limited. She did get a neurologist who helped her to develop a healthy lifestyle that has enabled her to really overcome the predictions. And she's an inspiration to us all. But she has such an interesting story to tell. Let me stop telling it. And welcome, Rebecca. Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Kaiser. It's great to be here and thank you for the tremendous work you do. Um, I was, uh, I'll just tell the story of my diagnosis. It's a a little bit unusual, but 
not completely rare. Um, I was happy as chancellor. I didn't notice huge changes, but I did go in for my annual physical because I knew I wanted to be a responsible person. And on the way to my annual physical, I got lost. And I told myself it was because she had moved her offices, but I'd been there before. When I got into my primary care physician, she said, any changes? And I laughed and I said, well, I sleep a lot. Now I'd been one of those people who'd never slept very much, you know, like many professionals or busy parents. I had a lot on my mind, so I didn't sleep a lot. But about six months before my annual physical, I started sleeping like nine hours a day. I told her I'd gotten lost. We la I laughed about that. At the end of the exam, she said, would you take a mini cognitive exam? And I said, sure. I mean, I never failed an exam in my life. So <laughs> uh, I thought piece of cake, but I really like her. So I said, sure. Well, I didn't pass. And she sent me for more testing. And I had brain scans and other tests. And after about four months, I saw the neurologist you told, you mentioned, who confirmed that I had mild cognitive impairment Alzheimer's. And like you said, she told me there wasn't much anybody could do. And that in a couple of years, I wouldn't be able to button my shirt or feed myself. I was totally devastated. I was, and my mother and grandmother had had Alzheimer's. So I, I had firsthand experience of this disease. But my life just changed but it was because I and that first neurologist <laughs> had outdated knowledge about Alzheimer's because for many years there wasn't much anybody could do I saw a second neurologist second opinions are always good and she said you have Alzheimer's MCI with Alzheimer's and then she said but there's so much you can do. There's so much research on lifestyle intervention. Medications will be coming out soon. If you can delay the rapid progress of your symptoms, you will live much longer and you will live well. And, and then she gave me advice and I started doing research about how one can delay the rapid progress. There's no cure. But instead of living for a couple years and living very poorly, you can live well. Some people live up to 10 years, we know, maybe even longer for some. How, how old were you when you got this diagnosis? I was 68. It started in 68, and I just turned 69 when I got the diagnosis. Well, as people have been listening to you. I think it's it's very hard to, whatever our perceptions are of somebody who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's uh, a few years ago, um, it's very hard to 
think of that person as being able to present the way that you are today. So it's really an inspiration. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing then to what did the, the second neurologist tell you to do? Uh, what have you been doing? Because it seems like we can't call it a miracle cure because it's not a cure, but it's, it's a miracle lifestyle, it seems like. Well, I, I do think it's a, at least a very transformed lifestyle and a lot of it does feel pretty miraculous. If you assume that Alzheimer's, like I assumed, you walk into that office and you're immediately uh, going to walk out becoming an empty shell. I mean, that, that stigma is very much a part of our mind. You know, six out of 10 Americans over 65, even when they suspect symptoms, don't want to go get diagnosed because they have that stigma in their mind. But as my second neurologist said, an amazing amount of research has been done and is being do done. So here, here's what I do. And you'll not be surprised by any of this, I bet. <laughs> so one is, you know, you have to get an early diagnosis. The earlier, the better. Uh, if you suspect or, or if you're just aging, go get a mini cognitive exam. That's the first step. In a couple of years, we'll have biomarkers that will just be part of a blood, a blood test you can take. But right now, the first step is a mini diagnosis. And then you've got to, and of course, you're going to be shocked. I mean, it's shocking to get any of these diseases. But you've got to get an attitude <laughs> so you don't sit in front of the television all day. Yeah, I call it the attitude to live in the light. You've got to accept that you can, with work and with joy, live well. So that's the first thing, you know, early diagnosis and attitude or find a story that helps you get an attitude. Uh, second is, I call it build your body to prolong your brain. Uh, you know, I, I, I never, like so many Westerners, really connected the brain and the body. In fact, as an academic, I always thought I was a brain with a body attached. Yeah. <laughs> I know you'd laugh about that. But, but, you know, all this research is, they're very interconnected. So build your body to prolong your brain. One is diet. Uh, you know, a lot of research for aging and for living well says the same thing. Avoid processed foods. And we don't have processed foods in our husband, in our household. Though my husband sneaks in crackers now and again. Um, I had to give up ice cream, which was horrid for me. But I follow a Mediterranean diet. Uh, that's The version I follow is called the mind diet. And it's crafted specifically for neuro, neuro, neurological disorders. And it's really Mediterranean, so very healthy, lots of greens. Uh, I eat blueberries every day, nuts, legumes, beans. Um, I eat chicken once in a while, some fish. Uh, but it's a very healthy-based style. So I, I like to say that 
Um, now I love Indian food. I live in Colorado, so we have great Mexican food and that can be made without meat and chicken. So diet is extremely important. Uh, diet, uh, a diet can fight inflammation. That's the mind diet. Or it can pour gas on that fire of inflammation in your brain. That's a high processed food diet. So that's how I think about it. Every bite counts. Um, sleep. You know, I, I was always so proud I didn't sleep very much. Um, I considered it my, my secret sauce. You know, everybody else got seven days a week. I got eight because I only slept four hours a night. So what I didn't know was that sleep is what heals the brain. Free radicals get produced during the day. I'm not a scientist, so I call, I imagine them as little demons in my brain <laughs> that get loose and hurt those neurotransmitters or connections. It is sleep that heals the brain, that, that sweeps out those free, free radicals. So now I sleep nine to 10 to 11 hours a day. I consider myself kind of a queen of sleep now. But sleep is really essential. Um, and I think that's hard in our culture. We're kind of anti-sleep. The fourth is exercise. And to me, that's the most important. Um, Wendy Suzuki, who's a neurologist, says exercise is the most transformative thing you can do for your brain. And uh, so I always had wanted a puppy. My husband didn't want to have a puppy, but when his wife got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, how could he say no? So I got a puppy. <laughs> and that puppy's really been a lifesaver for me on the exercise front. I got a very active puppy. So we walk an hour in the morning and a half an hour or so during the day. And then I lift weights and I also try to do some kind of choreographic kind of exercise so uh, dancing, I did kickboxing for a while, but I don't do that anymore. Something that gets the mind and body choreographed. So that's, that's the build the body part. And then there are a couple of other things. Um, creativity. So lots of new research shows that anything that you do to uh, create new neuropathways, such as painting, music, 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 gardening. Um, the people of Okinawa who garden a lot seem to fight Alzheimer's as well as anyone in the world. Uh, doodling, dancing, you could combine the exercise and the creativity. I paint. I wasn't one of those people who uh, painted as a child. In fact, I was a kid in first grade who the art teacher said, don't take art. <laughs> and my mother said, your sister's the artist. But uh, I learned to paint. You know, research said um, creativity is so essential. It, it doesn't have to be great. You don't have to sell it. I don't have to make a living on it. Um, so I paint. And I paint occasionally a good painting, 
Most of them I just store in the corner. I play with crafts. Uh, I sing music. So creativity is, is extremely important. And those, that's what my neurologist said. And that's what the basic research said. For me, spirituality has also been important. But I think those four, attitude, uh, and then build your body, The well, I guess it's five, attitude, diet, exercise, sleep, and create, is are really the basic building blocks to slow down those symptoms and live with and live well. well you're certainly uh, in line with all the research on cognitive research, uh, reserve, where yes. people who have uh, died and had autopsies, uh, people who would be diagnosed by the base of the brain as having Alzheimer's, but who didn't yeah. have symptoms of it. And it's, uh, but it's that combination of things, I think that's very important. It's not, not like, well, if you eat fruits and vegetables, but don't exercise, that's right. not work or so on. Um, I'm wondering, did this, I, obviously with sleep, it required a change. Uh, did it, in, in the other areas were, I mean, did, did you regularly exercise or what about, uh, I mean, I know you kept your brain active and yeah, work, but uh, uh, was, would you consider yourself as having had a, a moderately healthy lifestyle be before? Yeah, I would say moderately healthy. Um, and, you know, we don't really know what gives you Alzheimer's, but other than not sleeping very much, I don't think anything I did, you know, could I could look back on and say, oh, that must have caused it. Sometimes I wonder about sleep. But I didn't, uh, I didn't do much cardio. Um, I would, I would work out at a gym with the trainer. Um, I started when I was about 55. So didn't for many years do much. But at 55, I started to handle my stress. Uh, but it was lifting weights, you know, which, which I love and I still think is so key. And I'm small bones, so it was good for my bones. Uh, but I really had to find a way to get into cardio. And, and again, it's I don't do anything major. I'm not running marathons. You know, I'm walking or jogging slowly. I call it schlogging. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with my dog so that that was a big change and then you know my neurologist said two to two and a half hours a day now I'm not sure the research all backs that up I think most people say you know a less amount can do but I think there's also research that says uh, you know two hours a day is a good amount to strive for again it doesn't all have to be intensive now, as you've been talking, um, there, there are two things that that occur to me, one of which I've been very carefully trying to see where I can catch something that's showing me that you have Alzheimer's, mm. that you, whether you're forgetting something or uh, can't find the word or so on. Um, how if if you were to you got the diagnosis and all that and 
say the the neurologist said, "Come back and see me uh, if you know if you start having problems." Uh, I'm assuming that there is some follow up care that mm -hmm. yes, getting, yes, but assuming that wasn't the case, how do you know? How how does it show itself at at this point? I guess I'll ask that question and then ask my other one. Well, you know, and I, and I, and you know, everybody's so different, right? Some people show it up immediately by forgetting words and memory lapses. Um, mine uh, has been my short-term memory is very weak so uh recipes are a disaster my neurologist said you know uh cook and in my household i do all the cooking um cook once a week well you know i'm down to I mean, she said cook all the time if you can and then i'm down to maybe cooking once a week and i literally cannot have music on and i have to so concentrate so hard i used to throw dinner parties for 15 people together without thinking about it. So the time management, the concentration, you know, putting a meal on the table is actually a very complex activity because you've got to time it. You've got to remember, did I put the butter in? Did I put the salt in, et cetera? And uh, so, so that's one way I, I notice it. My husband and uh, my son who lives uh, very close to us say they can tell from short-term you know, short-term memory loss. Um, I think that would be the major way. Um, but complex conversations, I can, I can still have. I just wrote a book. I was able to do that, but only right after intensive exercise could I concentrate hard enough. Um, I'm just simply more tired than I've ever been, and I think that comes a little bit with age, of course, uh, but a lot with diseases like Alzheimer's. So by evening, I'm just toast. I mean, I can, I can barely do anything. And then driving. Um, I, uh, I was driving until about six months ago. And then it just got too uh, complicated. And we got too worried that I might have a wreck. So now I might drive three minutes to the grocery store. We live in a semi-rural part, but I would never drive into Denver or one of the big cities anymore. It's amazing story. The, uh, the other question though, that, that had occurred to me, uh, I know you're active in the Alzheimer's Association and you're doing promoting of things and, and your book is really about that. Uh, it's very hard to tell how somebody's going to react until it happens, but mm. I would think if I got that diagnosis and I could do as well as you do, I don't know that uh, I would choose one of my activities to to really identify with with Alzheimer's and do all that. I mean, did did you go through any uh, any struggles about that or? Uh. You know, I really did. Uh, so I got my diagnosis and everybody for months, all the medical professions, the psychother clinical psychotherapists and others I had to see said, you've got a high stress job. You're going to need to resign. It's, it's got to 
you know, high stress can add inflammation. That's what they kept telling me. So we had to make a decision and I decided to resign. I told my board, I was in a private, Denver is a private higher ed, so you have a board of trustees. I did tell them I had Alzheimer's. But when I announced it to the community, I said I had a complex neurological disorder. Because again, of the stigma. <laughs> and people don't know what to say. Will, it, will I lose all my friends? You know, I don't want people feeling sorry for me, all that kind of stuff. It took me, and I was devastated. I mean, my husband, and I'm not a crier. He is more of a crier than I am. But I, I just cried and cried for months. I mean, and, and it's depressing. But I would say three or four months, I decided I had to, I had to spend my time some way. And that's kind of when I started painting. And so it took me about nine to 10 months to decide to go public. And uh, I was a public figure and I knew that would mean, you know, I'd get attention. And I actually got a little award at a Center for Healthy Aging at University of Den Denver that was founded when I was chancellor. And when I got that award, I used that speech to talk about having Alzheimer's. And then I just got supported by people to keep going public. Uh, and a group of us, of about six of us who were all like me, they had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They were refusing to surrender, formed a support group on Zoom. Uh, and uh, we founded this group called the Voices of Alzheimer's to encourage ourselves and others to speak out because I think we all do need role models and to know that people can refuse to surrender. You can fight. Everybody's story is gonna be different. My story is not the same as anybody else's story, but the research shows you can refuse to surrender and live longer and as importantly, live well. That's great. It's so, so reassuring and so inspiring. <laughs> um, and uh, what I would like to do though, is take a few minutes and uh, we've been talking about your life from your late 60s on. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, how you got to be you uh, before <laughs> Alzheimer's, how you chose your career, what, uh, what the kind of the, the progression was through it and uh, what, what made you... <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of important to know and reflect on one's own story because you draw upon that when you're fighting a disease like this. I was a, a kind of, my dad was a carpenter, uh, finally became a businessman in kind of semi-rural Kansas. And I wasn't expected to go to college. In fact, my parents wouldn't uh, pay for college for me. But through a series of events, I ended up in college and I discovered I, I was good at being smart. <laughs> I was good at taking tests. 
until 2019. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I had I was not raised in a religious family, but for some reason, I'd always been interested in spirituality. Um, and so I majored in religion. I went to seminary. I went to University of Chicago. I got my PhD in theology. And uh, then I went to Emory and taught for 14 years. And I... Uh, was asked to be the interim provost, which is kind of the second in command in a university. So they oversee uh, all the academic aspects of the university. And I was asked to be at Emory provost and I did it and I liked it. And uh, I felt I could have more impact uh, as a professor, though I loved being a professor. Um, so I just got started and then I went to Yale as a dean and then went to Colgate University in upstate New York at Swarthmore College and then University of Denver. So really different schools, but I loved uh, getting to know the culture, analyzing, helping to move the school to its next stage. And, you know, what a wonderful career to work with, you know, students and faculty and alumni and yeah, it was great. Had a one wonderful time. Have one son. My husband has two. Um, they're all in their mid forties, and I have no grandchildren. But we have dogs and cats galore. Well, yes, that that keeps you busy with with yes. this. <laughs> That's great. Well, terrific story. Um, the other thing I'd really like to hear about, although I can pretty guess from the. The title of it is about the book, uh, but I'll let you talk. Oh. Tell us the title and when it's going to come out and okay. most importantly, what it's about. Okay. The title is Still Me, Accepting Alzheimer's Without Losing Yourself. And it really is exactly what we've been talking about in a more prolonged fashion. Uh, it is about my diagnosis. It is about uh, learning to live well. So all the things we talked about, uh, it plus a, a lot on uh, spirituality, kind of writ large, uh, not appealing to any one faith in particular. Uh, it talks a lot about the science behind the drugs and the current status of drugs and the science of Alzheimer's, but in layman's terms. Um, I did, I had a wonderful editor, so I think the book is very readable. Um, my son asked me as an academic to write a book that he could read. So I think I've accomplished that. And it has tips in almost every chapter. Um, because, you know, my passion in writing this book is really, you've got to get diagnosed. <laughs> and, and then you've got to refuse to surrender it, but you can live with joy. I mean, you've got to, you just have to find ways to live with this disease and uh, do what it takes. So there's a section on community, on advocacy, on paying forward with your loved ones. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy with the book and I hope um, I don't, all the, all the 
all the funds from the book will go to further research on Alzheimer's. So I'm hoping that a lot of people will read it and be helped by it and will raise money for the Alzheimer's associations, for VOA, for all those medical researchers out there who are going to treat and cure this disease eventually. And it will be available? Oh, it'll be available mid-February. And I have a website, Rebecca Chop Enterprises, so Rebecca.chop.enterprises, and there'll be pre-orders there. But far more easier than that, there will be, uh, it will be on Amazon and there will be a pre-order button on Amazon. And I think the website is more than just a place to order your book. Correct. It has blogs. So I'll be uh, uh, doing blogs every couple of weeks about Alzheimer's. It also has a lot of my paintings because I want to encourage people. So as you will see on this blog, some of my paintings are really good and some are just, you know, whatever. I had fun making them. Great. And uh, we'll have all the information in the show notes, but just a note is that CHOP has two Ps on it. Correct. CHOP has two Ps. That is unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this has been so enlightening. Uh, I guess I just want, I have one more question. And okay. Wrap up, but, uh, uh, and I appreciate all the time and all the Thank information you. given us, but uh, when somebody gets a diagnosis, um, and I, having worked in a, in a neurology department, mm -hmm. not all neurologists are the way your first one is, but uh, yeah. but also, you know, it's I'm sure it's not an easy thing for, for some people to communicate about. If somebody gets a diagnosis and... They're not done yet. They're not ready to be right. done yet. What do you suggest? Do they get a second opinion or that they read your book? Or what, what, what's the thing to do if somebody isn't giving them direction to uh, Correct. deal with it? Correct. If someone's not giving them direction uh, or if they don't have a good feel about it, then I think a second opinion is extremely important. The Alzheimer's Association, uh, one can simply Google that, is a wealth of information. And they have a 24-hour hotline that anybody can call day or night, and they can ask questions, directions, research. Um, Us Against Dementia is another fabulous website that has... Um, easy ways even online to kind of start, you know, uh, is it memory loss or could it be a cognitive disorder? You know, little decision trees. So I, I think knowledge is power. So get a diagnosis from someone you trust. That doctor should give you some basic information and you can Google lots, but I would go to the Alzheimer's Association or Us Against Dementia because those are tried and true resources. Wonderful. And read my book. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that goes without saying, and visit your website. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, 
Well, I promise my listeners that I try to find guests who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and and help us to become better versions of ourselves. I don't know that I've ever had a guest who meets that definition quite as well as you, Rebecca, and I am so grateful that you shared your knowledge with us and your time with us. And uh, wish you the very best of success going forward. Looking forward to your next book as well as seeing more of you. On that note, uh, this brings to a close another episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Hope that you all enjoyed and learned a lot from Rebecca Cha. Uh, Hope you'll listen to the podcast again. Tell your friends about it. Download it, rate, and review it. And then be back next time for another interesting guest, although probably... We'll have a hard time topping today's today's guest. We're so grateful to Rebecca. In the meantime, everybody maintain positive attitude. Recognize that uh, a diagnosis is not a determining factor in terms of how you're going to behave. As long as you have the ability to know what you're doing, uh, you can implement a plan regardless of of what condition you've been diagnosed with. Don't don't go quietly if you're not done yet. And uh, looking forward to hearing more uh, from Rebecca Chop. In the meantime, everybody stay positive, stay safe, and be back next time. Take care.